Welcome to Inside Politics. I'm Dana Bash, and it is a very busy day here in our nation's capital. Any moment, President Biden will speak from the White House on the bipartisan border bill that's on the brink of collapse. The bill includes a host of tough new border policies that the president says he'd sign, but Republicans are ready to torpedo it after Donald Trump came out against it. We're going to bring this to you live. Also this hour, I'll speak to the Republican who negotiated that deal. But first, a big court defeat for Donald Trump. A D.C. appeals court has unanimously rejected Trump's claim of presidential immunity in the federal election subversion case. CNN's Paula Reed has been digging through the decision. Paula, what stands out to you about the way that these uh, judges made the decision? Well, his outcome was very much expected. He had already lost on this issue, this argument that as president, he should enjoy near absolute immunity for things he did while in office. He already lost on this at the trial court. And a month ago at oral arguments, the three judges appeared quite skeptical of his lawyer's arguments about the breadth and depth of this protection that he was claiming. But what surprised me here is in addition to the constitutional analysis, the judges here eviscerating. Trump for his alleged actions after the 2020 election, uh, calling him unpresidential and suggesting this is an assault on American institutions, saying, quote, it would be a striking paradox if the president, who alone is vested with the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, were the sole officer capable of defying those laws with impunity. Now, in addition to these unprecedented constitutional questions, this is also about timing. A large part of the Trump strategy is to just try to delay, 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 push these federal cases back until after the November election. Because if he is reelected, Trump's attorney general could likely make Jack Smith and both of these criminal cases go away. Now, it took a month for the Court of Appeals to get us an answer here, but they appear to be trying to make up for a lost time, trying to prevent Trump from dragging his feet too long on any potential appeal. They said that Trump has until next week to signal to the Supreme Court that he intends to appeal. If he doesn't do that, then they'll send this back down to the trial court. But look, once the Supreme Court has this, it's unclear how long it'll take, though many sources in and around the Trump legal team tell me they would be surprised if the Supreme Court ultimately wanted to take up this issue. Wow, okay, stand by, because we're gonna talk a lot more about the legal implications, but of course, this is all about politics. Team uh, Trump is not happy. A new statement moments ago uh, came out and the Trump campaign spokesman argued that, quote, if immunity is not granted to a president, every future president who leaves office will be immediately indicted by the opposing party without complete immunity. A president of the United States would not be able to properly function. CNN's Caitlin Collins is now joining me live from New York. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming in early for us. Uh, I know you've been talking to Trump's campaign team. What else are they saying? So I think what's really key here is that Trump's team was expecting this. They did not think this court, that this, that these three judges who heard this argument, an argument that Paula noted did not go well for the Trump team, was going to go in their favor. So they were bracing for this decision. But what's different here is the time limit that this court is giving them. That is something that is essentially not something that they were expecting. It's more restrictive than what they thought the timing issue would look like here. And now this court is saying that you have until next Monday to decide if you are going to file that emergency appeal to the Supreme Court, have the merits of your argument argument presented to them, let the Supreme Court, of course, make the decision whether or not they're going to take this up, and we don't know what they would do. But by doing this, they are basically undercutting the other avenues that the Trump legal team would have here 
to try to to continue these appeals, to try to essentially waste more time mm -hmm. because they are pursuing that sole tactic of delaying this. And I think when you look at this decision and you look inside what these three judges are saying, they are eviscerating every single defense that Trump's team brought that day. All three of them saying that they have no merit, that they misread opinions and past rulings in some of these instances, and arguing that Trump's claim, as he's noting in his statement today from his spokesperson, Dana, that this would have a chilling effect on future presidents or cause future presidents to then try to prosecute their successors. They're saying that there's no merit to that argument. So mm -hmm. the question here, of course, is, they are going to appeal this to the Supreme Court. It's a matter of when they decide to do so by next Monday, based on what we're hearing. But the question, of course, is what argument they're then going to try to present to the Supreme Court, given they have a 57-page ruling right here, basically undercutting every defense that they've offered so far. Yeah, and, and I'm going to talk more with uh, my panel here about the legal aspects of this. But, Caitlin, because um, I have the benefit of having you here, and I really want to get your political brain on this, uh, about what we've seen even in the last couple of weeks with poll after poll coming out that shows that as much as the legal issues have been a benefit to the former president in his campaign in the short term, not so much if, in fact, he does become the Republican uh, nominee and looking at the long term and how people view him as a candidate for president again. Is that penetrating at all inside the campaign? Yeah, it's a concerning thought for them because it's exactly what Bill Barr, Nikki Haley, you know, former Vice President Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis, all of these people uh, who have been critical of Trump or, or his actions have said, sure, this works great in a primary. And clearly it's benefited Trump. Ron DeSantis you know, said at one point that it had distorted the Republican primary by giving Trump such a, a wide berth of uh, a wide lead over everyone else. But when it comes to the actual general election and mm -hmm. those independent voters that Trump did not do well with, and the question is whether or not he could make up that ground this time around, this is not something that's going to go over well with him, especially when you look at what this, even these three judges are saying about what's at the heart of this, that Trump's view of immunity would collapse the system yeah. of separated powers, that what he's alleged to have done that day would hit right at the heart of American democracy. Having that on trial every single day would obviously not be beneficial to them in a general election, and the political team inside Trump's world is quite aware of that. Caitlin, thank you so much. Great to see you. Uh, let's talk more about the legal implications of this. Paula is still with us. Also joining me here at the table, legal analyst Elliot Williams and CNN Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskubic. Let's just pick up on the exact quote that Caitlin was talking about, and I'll just read some of it from this decision. At bottom, former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches. Presidential immunity against federal indictment would mean that as to the president, the Congress could not legislate, the executive could not prosecute, and the judiciary could not review. We cannot, cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. So I'd say a few things in response to that. Number one, and the whole opinion is written sort of as a bit of a love letter to the rule of law and the idea of what it takes to hold people accountable. And there's a few things in that. So with respect to that specific point, they say that yes, presidents are entitled to protections. The presidency in the United States is unique. However, 
Article 2, which creates the presidency, also has an interest in enforcing the law. We need to be able to enforce criminal laws, and they say that quite explicitly. Another point, and this is uh, in response to the Trump team's quote, mm -hmm. this idea of selective or abusive prosecutions, the opinion lays out that, no, we actually have several checks in our, in our system written in the Constitution for ensuring that people are not selectively prosecuted. You've got to go by a grand jury, a judge has to hear the case, and then a jury has to hear it. All of these things that in the future, this idea that now every Democratic or Republican president is going to be impeached or prosecuted by the other side just falls apart. Yeah. Okay, Joan, uh, you know the Supreme Court better than anybody. Uh, the question is, assuming that Trump team is going to appeal, which of right. course they are, what's the Supreme Court going to do? Are they going to take the case? Okay, first they'll ask for a Jack Smith response, and I guarantee you Jack Smith's lawyers right now are readying that response mm -hmm. so that they're able to drop it in early next week. Then Donald Trump will have a chance to come back and respond to that response. You know, they could decide in just a matter of days or just maybe, you know, two weeks whether they're going to grant it or not grant it. But this is, this is a, it's not an easy call. And I'll tell you why. Not an easy call to take it or, or what the decision would be or both? Both. Well, first of all, I think in the end, even if the justices took it up, they would affirm this kind of ruling because this ruling is really solid. It takes advantage of precedent that really counters the audacious uh, claim that Donald Trump was making is that he should be absolutely immune. But the issue is whether the Supreme Court itself feels like it needs to weigh in. And if there are a couple justices who think, we're not going to just leave it to the D.C. Circuit. It's ours to say in the end. So there, there are some competing interests here. On one hand, I would say, Dana, um, the justices are already in, embroiled in a politically charged case to be heard Thursday, mm -hmm. testing whether Donald Trump should be removed from the ballot because he's an insurrectionist. So they're already involved in a major election case. There will be an incentive not to take this one up. And also, as I said, this lower court opinion is very sound, well-grounded, is in sync with where the justices are. But again, it is a question that has never been resolved by the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. There might be, you know, there takes only four justices to grant an appeal like this. So we shall see, as I said, a lot of tension. And one of the uh, most stunning things about this decision wasn't just what I read before, which is more sort of theoretical about how the government should work uh, and would work or would not work, in their opinion, if Donald Trump or any president had immunity. It's also really biting when it comes to him personally and his actions that precipitated this question. Uh, they say former President Trump alleged efforts to remain in power despite losing the 2020 election were proven an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. He allegedly injected himself into a process in which the president has no role, the counting and certifying of the electoral votes, thereby undermining constitutionally established procedures and the will of the Congress. They're, they're actually delving into the, actual, the core of the question of what happened and, and what is going through the process uh, in, in the prosecution. Likely for the historical record. There is a world in which Trump will never be prosecuted on these charges. As I said, it's an open question about how long it'll take the Supreme Court uh, to go through the process of deciding if they want to take it up, if they take this issue up, how long it takes them to decide. There is absolutely a world in which Trump is successful at the strategy of delay, uh, delaying this past November 2024. If he's reelected, he can make the case go away. So a quote like that from these three judges, again, I think it's to preserve 
the historical record for exactly what happened here and having judges evaluate that conduct. So and Dana, can I just say who was on this panel? We had three judges, one who was appointed by George H.W. Bush in 1990 and two recent Biden appointees and all of them signed this unanimously. And that's a really important point. Uh, when we talk about an unsigned opinion, the Latin is a per curiam opinion. Mm -hmm. It's not Judge Biskupic writing for an Elliot and Paula agreeing with it. It's we, the three, are writing as one voice without putting any of our names on it. So to show as a sign of unanimity. Mm -hmm. So that's a big one too. To the point about specifics of uh, President Trump's particular case, at least twice in the opinion, they cite to the 30 Republican senators who said that they could not convict the president under impeachment because he was no longer president of the United States. So one of the very core arguments they were making was that, well, impeachment was the way to do this. So, you know, let's punt to the criminal courts. And now the, the court said, well, actually, no, you know, watch what you say, Republican senators, watch what you ask for, because now the former president can't actually be charged with a crime. And the fact that they gave this deadline for Monday, they're trying to um, to thwart the Trump strategy to delay, delay, delay as much as they can. Right. Typically, believe it or not, you have 90 days oh, yeah. to go well, to I the know. Supreme yeah, Court. I believe it. But, you know, obviously this is an urgent matter. So they've given him until Monday. The Supreme Court itself, though, can slow it down a little bit more by whatever briefing schedule it, it uh, puts in place for responses. And it could also issue its own stay, uh, a postponement in effect, while it decides whether to decide. Yeah. So there are some hurdles ahead in terms of timing. So fascinating. Thank you. I'm so lucky to have you all here to break <laughs> it down for our viewers and for me. Uh, coming up, another very big story here in Washington. Republicans are poised to reject the latest effort to help solve the crisis at the border. I'll talk to the man who is still trying to win over his colleagues. GOP Senator James Langford of Oklahoma is next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. The bipartisan border deal that took months to negotiate and was released just two days ago is now on the brink of collapse. The number two Senate Republican, John Thune of South Dakota, just became the latest Republican to come out against it. Now, a reminder, 
This deal includes huge wins for conservatives. It requires the border to be shut down when crossings average 5,000 a day. That would happen for a week. Make it harder for migrants to seek asylum. Make it easier to remove them if their claims are rejected. It would be the toughest border security bill in decades. Joining me now is the lead Republican negotiator on this bill, Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I guess my first question is about you and whether or not you personally are going to vote to advance this bill when it comes up for a procedural vote tomorrow. Yeah, this is a bill I believe in. I'm trying to be able to work through the process to be able to help colleagues understand more about it, what's actually included in it to be able to dispel myths that are out there about it, which there are seems to be a thousand myths of what's actually in this bill or not in this bill. So we're working through that. There's two different stages on this. The procedural stage is coming up tomorrow or the next day. I don't know when Senator Schumer would actually schedule that. Mm-hmm. The procedural motion, if it is to delay it and to say we need more time to be able to review it, I'm glad to be able to say let's delay it, let's keep it going. But if this is all about killing it, we need to find a solution. We have a major problem on our border. We need to solve it. And I understand this is not everything that everyone wants for every single proposal on it, but it's the single most significant shift that we'd have in border policy in decades. And we need to do everything that we can actually get done. Senator, how are you going to determine whether or not it's an effort to kill it or whether it's an effort to spend more time? Meaning, like, how are you going to decide whether to even vote yes on the procedure? procedural measure tomorrow. That's going to be a conversation with my colleagues, quite frankly, to be able to walk through that. We're about to have lunch together here in just a few moments. We'll get some dialogue there. I'll be able to do some follow-up on it. And uh, so we'll be able to determine how to be able to solve this. How disappointed are you uh, that your leader, Mitch McConnell, in the meeting that you all had last night, told fellow Senate Republicans that if they didn't like the deal, they could just vote against it? No, that's that. That's true for everybody. I think he stated the obvious on this. If people don't like a bill, they vote against it. It's the nature of the Senate, the House or the Senate, quite frankly. So that that's part of it. For me, this is a matter of we're going to work from myself and my team to be able to find solutions, to be able to say if we have a national security crisis, let's find a way to be able to solve it. We may not get 100 percent done on everything, but let's get done as much as we can. Senator, I want to play for our viewers what President, former President Trump said about you last night. It's a very bad bill for his career, uh, and especially in Oklahoma. You know, I won in Oklahoma. He's senator from Oklahoma. I won 77 out of 77 counties. Ronald Reagan is second with 56. I won all 77 counties in Oklahoma. I know those people. They're great people. They're not going to be happy about this. Nobody's going to be happy about this. Senator, you told my colleague Jake Tapper that uh, Trump has a, quote, different job than you do right now. But I just want to take a step back. The man likely to be your party's nominee for president sees his job as killing a deal that could make a crisis at the border better. What does that say about him as a leader? Well, he is in a political campaign right now. Obviously, he's looking at the political issues on that. That's very different when you're in a campaign to look at all the politics of what's happening. I'm not in a political campaign right now. I'm in the United States Senate, and I'm focused on what does it take to actually secure the country right now? What can we do to actually solve a problem? In December, we had the highest number of crossings ever in the history of the country. We've had a dramatic rise in non-Spanish speaking immigrants that have come across in the past year. Folks from China, folks from Russia, folks from uh, all the stands, Pakistan and the Middle East. We've had a rapid rise in folks that are coming from terrorist areas in West Africa. We have a real national security issue. This is not just a immigration issue. Right. This is a rapidly growing national security right, issue. So if, That's what I want to work on. Right. So, so if what you're saying is true and 
by all accounts it is, if somebody wants to be president of the United States, why would they put politics in front of the national security that you're talking about? I mean, is that really responsible? Well, I'll let everybody else decide and be able to well, go through that. What do you think? My, my, my issue is this president, President Biden, does have authorities he's not using. President Trump had authorities that he did use. President Obama had authorities. My push has been even if President Biden enforced the border the same way President Obama did, we'd be in a very different nation right now as far as what's happening on immigration. We have six times as many people crossing illegally now that we had under President Obama. We have a much higher number than that than we had crossing under President Trump. But I would say when President Trump was president in 2019, we had numbers of 3,000, 4,000, 4,500 mm -hmm. some days that were illegally crossing the border in 2019. He was asking at that time for authorities and changes in the asylum law. This bill provides those changes in the asylum law. It would be an enormous shift, not just for this president or the next mm -hmm. president, but for the next one, the next one, the next one. As a lawmaker, I have a responsibility to look on the long horizon and say, what do we do to fix an obvious hole? This is an obvious hole in the law. Let's fix it. Just staying on the politics that you were referring to with regard to uh, Donald Trump, is this, if it does die, going to give President Biden a legitimate political argument to run on saying, I was for this bill that you negotiated and Republicans killed it because they wanted politics? Aren't you sort of handing Joe Biden a political issue? Yeah, I, I think it's obviously up to everybody and how they're voting on it because I want to actually pass this bill right. and to be able to get it done. But I would also say, there are things on the border that are not being done right now. Again, I go back to President Obama enforced the border much better than President Biden did. If he just did what President Obama did, we'd be in a much better place on it. But President Biden, for whatever reason, is choosing not okay. to use those authorities, not to slow down the process. So I think the American people are going to judge him based on what he's doing now, not based on what this vote is one way or the other. I just wanted you to take a step back because you spent months negotiating this bill. You talked about uh, everything that is in there, uh, that the bill not only tightens immigration laws, funds the border. It does nothing that Democrats have wanted for years, like DACA or legal status of any kind for undocumented immigrants. But because Donald Trump threatened your fellow Republicans not to support it, most caved, not just in the House, but that's happening where you are in the United States Senate. Are you gobsmacked? I, I'm legitimately surprised at where we are at this moment because as Republicans, we've done lots of press conferences at the border. We've had lots of conversations to say things have got to change. We, House Republicans passed HR2 saying we've got to have changes in the law uh, because the law has problems. So they passed a bill. It was a straight partisan bill. It was a very, very good bill. They passed a bill saying we've got to have changes in the law. Senate Republicans demanded changes in the law in October and said we're not going to move on other people's national security until we're dealing with our national security. And now we get to this moment. I've got so many colleagues that are backing away. And that, I'm not saying it's all based on the political reasons. Some will have legitimate issues and say, hey, I don't like this part of the bill or I wish there was more in it. But some are backing away also based on the politics of the moment. So everybody's going to make their own decisions to be able to walk through this. I still go back to my basic responsibility. I have a responsibility to do whatever I can to be able to secure the, uh, the nation as strong as I can at the moment that I'm standing in. I want to read some of what the Wall Street Journal editorial said this morning. Of course, that's a historically conservative platform. They said if Republicans reject the bill, they will hand Democrats an argument that the GOP wants border chaos and that they can exploit as a campaign issue. The chaos will continue for at least another year. Republicans may think they can write a better law if Mr. Trump wins in November, but don't count on it. Democrats will again demand much more in return if Republicans pass up this 
this rare chance at border reform. They not, may not get a better one. Are they right? You've been working at this for four months. Is this the best that that you think is possible in the Congress that might not change that much, even if Donald Trump does become president again? Well, we actually tried to pass uh, changes in law dealing with these issues. When Donald Trump was president, we had a Republican House, Republican Senate, and a Republican president. Democrats did block it in the Senate at that point, and we were not able to be able to move on changes in the law. This bill that we're bringing forward, the three of us had negotiated together, was the best that we could possibly get it. Our desire was to be able to get it to the Senate, have amendments, have an open process on it, allow time for the Babel Senate to be able to work its will, send it to the House, allow the House to be able to do amendments and to be able to work its will on it. So the, the desire always was to be able to bring an initial stage and to say, let's everybody get their fingerprints on it, let's everybody talk about it, and to be able to figure out what they like, don't like, what we need to be able to change. That to me is lawmaking when you go through the process and to be able to actually set it in front of everybody and say, let's debate this out, make changes that we need to. But at the end of it, worst case scenario is to do nothing. We need to do something. And I think the American people, regardless of your political persuasion, want to see actually something change on the border. Senator, while your former colleagues in the House are saying no to what you have worked on for months, new laws to tighten the border, they're voting tonight on impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas because he hasn't done enough to secure the border. Is that a good idea? I'll let the House determine on that. I would, my comment has been pretty consistent on this. There are major issues that are on the border. Everybody sees it. No one thinks it is going well. Are there additional authorities that could have been used that were not used? Absolutely. Now, the next question is, is that Ali Mayorkas that made the decision not to use those authorities, or is it President Biden that told him you cannot use those authorities? My impression is, regardless of who the Secretary of Homeland Security is, it is his boss is the one who actually makes those decisions. Donald Trump had four different Secretaries of Homeland Security, but they all had the exact same policy, regardless of who was in that chair. So I would say the clearest thing I could on this, Ali Mayorkas and I have had frank conversations. We know where we have strong disagreements on different issues. But the president of the United States is the one who actually sets border policy. Sounds like you're saying impeaching him is a bad idea. I'll leave that up to be able to deal with over there, because if it lands over here, I'll end up sitting in it as a, a juror in that case. Yeah, uh, well, I, I understand that. I, um, I thank you for coming on. And point of personal privilege, as you like to say, in the United States Senate, I've covered you since you got here uh, to Washington back in, uh, in 2010. And I don't know of a more conservative uh, member of Congress than you. So uh, just to sort of lay out the facts where we see them. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Coming up more on the twisted politics of the border, plus Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in the Middle East meeting with leaders of Egypt and Qatar, and he is trying to make progress on the release of Israeli hostages from Gaza. We'll hear how those talks are going next. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Let's get straight to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Doha. Of the last pause, the initial pause, um, 105 hostages out, a significant increase in humanitarian assistance getting in, the repair of critical infrastructure uh, in Gaza, 
and more broadly, reduced regional tensions at the same time. So together with Qatar and Egypt, we put forward, as you know, a serious proposal that was aimed at not simply repeating the previous agreement, but expanding it. Uh, as the Prime Minister just said, Hamas responded tonight. We're reviewing that response now, uh, and I'll be discussing it with the government of Israel tomorrow. There's still a lot of work to be done, but we continue to believe that an agreement is possible and indeed essential, uh, and we will continue to work relentlessly to achieve it. Uh, we had meetings already uh, on this trip in, uh, in Riyadh, in Cairo, now today in Doha, focused on ensuring as well that we can use any pause to continue to build out plans for the day after uh, in Gaza, uh, the security, humanitarian, reconstruction, governance, all bring uh, real challenges with them, but that's exactly why we are and need to be focused on them now. We're also determined to use any pause to continue to pave a diplomatic path forward to a just and lasting peace and security for the region. That is the best way, the best way to ensure that October 7th and the tragic loss of life by Israelis and Palestinians is not repeated. Uh, when I was last in the region a few weeks ago, uh, I said then that there's a very powerful path uh, that we can see before us to actually get to lasting peace and security. And it's coming ever more sharply into focus. An Israel that is integrated into the region with security guarantees from its neighbors and partners, alongside a practical, time-bound, irreversible path to a Palestinian state living side by side in peace with Israel with the necessary security arrangements for both peoples. Uh, on this visit, one of our key objectives has been to continue to hammer out the substance and sequence of all the steps that would be necessary to enable us to move down that path. Now, that's one path. It's clear, and you can see that it gets us to a destination that would benefit virtually everyone in the region and, as I said, bring lasting peace and security to Israelis and Palestinians alike. Uh, but there are those who want to move the region in a different direction and take a different path and who are actively working to sabotage every effort to move toward lasting peace and security. Just look at what we've seen in the last couple of months and indeed in the last couple of weeks. Attacks in Syria and Iraq, attacks on Israel from Lebanon, attacks on international shipping in the Red Sea, attacks in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members, and of course, the attack on Israel on October 7th. Each and every one carried out by groups trained, armed, funded, informed by Iran. Iran and its proxies claim that they're carrying out these attacks somehow on behalf of the Palestinian people. That is absolutely wrong, and it's a cover for their true intent. Not a single one of these attacks has advanced the rights, the opportunities, the security, and the dignity 
of the Palestinians. They are all fundamentally about Iran's quest for power. Since October 7th, we've been very clear in warning any actor that would try to take advantage of the conflict, don't do it. We've been very clear that we do not want to see the conflict expanded. We don't want to see escalation. Uh, but we've also been clear that if our personnel, if our people are threatened, if they're attacked, we will respond. We will defend them. We are responding to violence, not initiating it. We're seeking to prevent escalation, not fuel it. And as we do this, we will continue to use every tool available to us to reach an extended pause that gets hostages out, that gets more assistance in, that brings calm to Gaza's civilians, and that keeps diplomacy moving forward toward an integrated and more secure region. In these efforts, we're very fortunate to have Qatar as a partner. Thank you. My first question is addressed to His Excellency, Prime Minister, Minister of Foreign Affairs. What is the evaluation of Qatar for the regional development? Okay, you've been listening to U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, uh, who is in Doha, Qatar, working feverishly with uh, partners in Qatar and, of course, uh, Saudi Arabian leaders to try to find some kind of deal to get the remaining uh, hostages, Israeli hostages, even some Americans, six of them still, who are inside Gaza, believed to be there, out. Uh, I want to get straight to CNN's Alex Marquardt, who has been reporting on the hostage negotiations. Uh, first, your, uh, your sense of what was said, what wasn't said, and also, more importantly, what are you learning from your sources, Alex? Well, Dana, this is clearly a step forward, but uh, the, the deal is not there yet. So what uh, Secretary Blinken and his Qatari counterpart are announcing just now is something that we've been waiting for uh, for more than a week, and that is the Hamas response uh, to what we've been calling a, a broad framework to get a hostage deal, a ceasefire deal in place. This was something that was agreed to uh, by the U.S. with the CIA director, Bill Burns, his Israeli and Egyptian counterparts, as well as Prime Minister Altani of Qatar, who you saw just there last, the weekend before last in Paris. Uh, that deal was then presented to Hamas. They were not uh, in attendance in Paris, of course. And so we have been waiting to see what they would say. Now, in the meantime, Hamas had been, given, had been giving indications uh, that they would not accept a deal that does not lead to the end of the war, that would not see Israeli soldiers leave the Gaza Strip, and that is something that Israel so far has been refusing to do. So what we've got here, Dana, is Hamas's response, uh, which the Qatari Prime Minister said is generally positive, um, and Secretary Blinken saying it is something that they are reviewing that he will present to the Israeli government tomorrow. He's traveling from Qatar uh, to Israel. He'll meet with Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, and others tomorrow. And this is what we were expecting, not a yes or no from Hamas, mm -hmm. but a counterproposal. And right now we don't have the details of that counterproposal, but it's clear that this is moving forward in a generally positive direction. I mean, that's that's better than nothing for sure. But uh, of course, there are so many uh, families, the families of hundreds of people, more than 100 people, I should say, uh, in Israel and around the world who have been waiting for 
well over 100 days to find out where their loved one is and in the hopes that their loved one is still with us and will be able to be released. Uh, thank you so much, Alex, for that. I really appreciate putting it into context and giving us the reporting that you have. Thank you. And coming up, more developments on the big story, the other big story uh, here in Washington. A federal appeals court says Donald Trump does not have immunity in the January 6th case. What does it mean as his courtroom and campaign calendars continue to collide? We'll look at that next. Donald Trump is already fundraising off a federal appeals court, rejecting his claim of immunity. Minutes after the ruling, his campaign sent an email asking for cash, saying in part, they won't stop until the MAGA movement is erased. They won't stop until they have complete control. My reporter panel joins me now, CNN's Kristen Holmes, Tolu Alongapa, I'll get that right someday, Tolu, of the Washington Post, and CNN's Lauren Fox. Um, I don't think it's a huge surprise that he's uh, fundraising off it, particularly when you think about $50 million that I was gonna say he needs the money. all of the entities <laughs> spent already um, of campaign cash on his legal fees. Uh, what more are you hearing from the campaign? I think all of this is really them trying to figure out what this means for timing. What we have seen them do in all of their various legal cases is try to delay this past the 2024 election. And the one thing that they had been pleased with was last week, Judge Chuckin essentially taking this off the calendar. They thought that meant good things for them. It could possibly be pushed even further. And once it gets closer and closer to the election, there is a belief that it's possible they won't bring the case at all. Now that changes things because of this February 12th deadline that they've been given, there's questions about whether or not this moves up the timeline, whether or not you're going to see this trial earlier rather than later. Yeah, and then there's this trial, if we just kind of want to look at some of the Trump-related cases, some of the Trump-related cases, and the Supreme Court. Uh, this Thursday, the Supreme Court is going to hear arguments in uh, whether or not he should be banned from the uh, ballot in, in Colorado, which would have uh, an effect more broadly than Colorado. Of course, we're waiting for uh, the Supreme Court on now on the Supreme on January 6th on immunity and then later on the obstruction law. And then we have the federal gag order. So this is going to be if he does become the nominee, the constant tale of the Trump campaign. Certainly, and I'm sure former President Trump is happy that he put three justices on the Supreme Court at a moment like this because he's going to be before them over and over again. He's going to have to take his case to the people that he appointed as well as take uh, a number of these key cases of constitutionality before the Supreme Court. And hopefully, uh, in his mind, the people that he appointed have the same view that he does. Now, they haven't always agreed with him on every issue. And so the fact that he's going to be spending so much time on the campaign trail, dealing with the courts, dealing with the Supreme Court, makes it harder for him to bring his message to the American people about what he would do in a second term. Yeah. And, and Lauren, because we have you here, I got to get your um get you to dump out your notebook and, and everything that you're learning right now about what is going on on Capitol Hill, where you uh, spend most of your time. Uh, first and foremost, it, I thought it was really interesting that Senator Lankford, who negotiated this bill, is leaving open the possibility that he might vote no on the procedural move tomorrow. He says if it's clear that people want to talk, that's one thing. But if they just want to kill the bill, that's another thing. That would be 
amazing. Yeah, you had an incredible follow-up to that too, which was how are you going to know the difference between mm -hmm. those two things? Because the reality is time is not making the situation better. Time has not made the situation better for weeks. The right was assailing this bill. Trump was attacking this bill. And the people who were negotiating it, for good reason, wanted to keep it close hold. But the reality was more and more misinformation about what was in this bill was getting out there. And it was becoming the narrative. And once the bill was released, it was already too late. It was minutes before you saw the speaker, the majority leader coming out saying this bill was not even going to get a vote in the House. Mm -hmm. And now you have Republican senators, some of whom, like Tom Tillis, were cheering Langford on for the last several weeks saying, they are not voting tomorrow to advance this bill in the Senate. I think things are in a really dire place. And if they have another week to talk about it, that is not going to help the vote count. Time is never on the side of any deal like this. No. I mean, ever. Uh, never mind the fact that that's happening or not happening in the Senate and the House Republicans who say uh, we have to do more on the border um, and this isn't it are going to say, probably later on, well, we'll see how the votes go, uh, we're going to impeach the Department of Homeland Security Secretary, which he also suggested might not be the greatest idea, although he was careful, Senator Langford, not to go fully there in yeah. case he's a juror. Okay, everybody, stand by. We are standing by to hear from President Biden. He's going to be speaking about what we were just discussing, this border bill, which he supports. That's coming up. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.